0: Beloved, if you didn't get a handout, go ahead and grab one quickly um, from the back. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 59. And we're going to pick it up tonight in verse 15. And we're going to close out the section really that began in Isaiah 53 with the description of our suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the application of what he did, what he has done um, in our lives. And this is kind of going to be the close too of um, this, this portion of Isaiah before we get to the future glory of God's people, um, the beauty of the new, the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, um, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to do Isaiah 60 through 66. But we need to begin tonight in Isaiah 59, verses 15 uh, through 21. So let's stand together and let's read these words um, that Isaiah writes for us. This is the word of the living God to our souls. Isaiah writes, Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it is, a, it is a rich treasure to gather together as your people. Lord, to sing praise and honor to the glory and to the, and to the everlasting honor of our Redeemer and our Lord. God, it is good to be reminded of the pit from which we have been delivered, and Father of the future that awaits your people. It is good, Father, in the midst of this sinful world, to be reminded that we are exiles here, and that ultimately, you know, what what happens in this life, Father, it's just temporal. And eternity awaits. A glorious eternity awaits your people. Well, we thank you. We praise you, Lord God, for your grace that is powerful, that is durable, that is irresistible. Lord, the grace that you have brought to a people like us desperately in need. We praise you, Father God, for the love. And the mercy with which you have pursued us and you keep us. And God, we thank you for your truth. Which as we sung, it is the fount of perfect wisdom. And it is our highest good. It's our unending need. We need your word. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight you will give me grace, Father, to expound and exposit these words from Isaiah these words, Lord God, that you gave to him by the Holy Spirit, that, Lord God, that same Spirit, you would please grant me strength and wisdom and understanding, Lord God, that you would give me the unction of your Holy Spirit so that I would be an instrument in your hands for the praise of your glory and for the good of the people that are here, the good of the people that are gathered here and that will hear this message. Father, I pray that you would use this time powerfully and and, and seriously in our lives. That, Lord God, we, we wouldn't just, you know, think of this as another study in the book of Isaiah, but we would hear these words as they are, the words of life. And you would strengthen us and comfort us and encourage us and embolden us through your truth. To you we give all glory. Lord, to all glory. All glory belongs to you. To you we give all praise. All praise belongs to you. To you we give all all honor to you we present ourselves as living sacrifices this day and lord may you be glorified in us and through us for the praise of your name we ask it in Jesus name amen So beloved I've said this a lot but as I've mentioned before everything that we've been studying in Isaiah over the last several weeks is predicated on and established on the foundation of Isaiah 53 right It's founded on the the truth of Isaiah 53, the promise that has now been fulfilled, right, of the servant of God who would enter this fallen world and bring salvation to God's people, that he would do so, right, by bearing in himself the penalty for our sins, bearing our grief, carrying our sorrows, that he would be smitten by God, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities so that he could bring us peace with god by his wounds our souls are healed he offered himself as our guilt he for our guilt, he, cr- he was crushed in our place by the holy God to pay the debt of our sin. And he rose from the dead to see a multitude rescued from the death and the degradation of sin, making us to be accounted righteous before the Lord in him so that he can share with us the reward of his spoils, the reward of his victory on our behalf. Right. It's awesome news. Right. Right. And then as we progress from that incredible chapter, we come to chapter 54. And there, Isaiah recounts for us the blessings of this eternal covenant that we have with God now through his servant. This promise of joy unbounded, that that should be the distinguishing characteristic of all that, are, that are, have been redeemed by the Lord. Our lives are to be defined by joy. Great joy, unbounded joy, right? He talks to us about the promise of God's steadfast and unchanging love that we can bank on God's love now and for eternity, right? He talks to us about the heart of God's compassion, his heart of compassion for his people. He talks about God's unfailing faithfulness to us and the security that we have that is the result, right? All that in chapter 54. Then we jump into 55, right? And there we read of this great invitation to come and to partake of this glorious salvation, to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near to forsake our sin, to forsake our wickedness and to come to the Lord who promises to give to us abundant pardon, right? And then we come to these two triads. The first one, we looked at in chapters 56 and, and 57. And there we are told how it is that we are to live in light of God's great salvation, right? The, the Jewish remnant in view of Christ's first coming and us in view of his second coming, right? Right? We're warned of false shepherds and worthless watchmen who, because of their unfaithfulness, will cause the numbers of the, the righteous men and women to dwindle throughout the ages, right? We read about the apostasy of many from faith in the Lord. But also of the promise that God will ensure that his church will grow and that his people will remain secure despite external societal opposition and internal apostasy, right? The Lord will do so because he will create in his people, remember, the fruit of the lips. Remember, we talked about that, how God will intervene sovereignly how he intervenes in the life of his people sovereignly. As the sovereign God, he makes the dead to live and he produces in his people the very fruit of confession and repentance and faith in Christ and praise and honor to the Lord. God's church will endure because of God's sovereign will to create and sustain his people and to do so in divine peace, right? It's all up to God. And now tonight we come to the end of this second triad that began in chapter 58. And the message of this triad, you'll remember, is is, is similar to the first, but it's not identical to it. And in this triad, we see first the essential and vital difference between false and true religion, right? Between false and true repentance, between superficiality and sincerity before the Lord, right? And the difference between those two, Isaiah tells us, is the difference between experiencing eternal cursing or everlasting, everlasting blessing, right? True repentance leads to enduring blessing, life and walking in the light, the sustaining presence of God, delight in the Lord, his blessing to the generations, while false repentance leads to destruction. Then chapter 59, Isaiah begins to deal with the problem of sin, Right? The problem of sin that still exists among the professing people of God, right? The guilt of sin has been conquered once and for all through the servant, right? It's enslaving power for those of us who are truly in Christ. It's been broken, right? But sin is not asleep, is it? And through various means and methods and people authored by Satan. It is still seeking to have dominion over us. In the first 15 verses of this chapter, Isaiah deals with the reality of sin still present among the people of God, the way that it destroys, the way that it divides, the way that it degrades, right? And we see, remember, this corporate lament that we looked at last week. You can just move your eyes back quickly to verses 12 and 13. This corporate lament that Isaiah leads the people in, right? where he says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Now that's like the, that's, that's the sort of the progression, the end progression, right, of, of, of pursuing sin foolishly. But the point that we're to take from that, is that sin still seeks to destroy and oppress us. It seeks, beloved, to insinuate itself into every part of our lives, right? We are not hermetically sealed individuals. Sin still lurks, and it looks for ways to insinuate itself into our lives. The fight with sin, the fight with sinful influences, in a world especially that is steeped in sin, right? Right? It's an essential part of our battle for faithfulness to the God who redeemed us, is it not? In fact, it's part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Man, when you get saved, that's not the, quote, end of the battle. Beloved, that's the beginning, isn't it? Like when you were lost and you weren't in Christ and and you didn't care about what the word of God had to say or the law of God at all except to break it, you weren't fighting against sin you are sin's greatest ally sin sure let's go for it right but once you get saved once you are redeemed by the living god that's when sin i mean seriously when you get when you first get saved i don't know if this has been your your experience i suspect that it has been this is mine when i first got saved i knew about that much of my sin now Having walked with the Lord for a few decades, my vision of my sin is like this. The fight starts when you get saved. And that's why we're told, for instance, in the Word of God, these kinds of things. Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Now, why would you need to hear that? Because sin wants to. Or Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul tells the Colossians, right? Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. And then he Gives us some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then last, Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 6 and starting in verse 10, and you know these words well, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, unless our lives on this earth as the redeemed of the lord unless they are you know truly characterized by real battle and strife against sin then these words are wasted ones aren't they what's the point of them in the word of god now the truth is the battle with sin is part and parcel of what it means to be a christian and it won't end until we draw our final breath or until the lord himself returns whichever comes first right Sinclair Ferguson, in talking about this, says, you know, what then is the killing of sin? What does that look like? He says, It is the constant battle against sin which we fight daily. The refusal to allow the eye to wander. The mind to contemplate. The affections to run after anything which will draw us away from Christ. It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. Let me read that last sentence again. It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. Now here's the truth, beloved, and you know this. It can become wearying and taxing, right? It can become exhausting and painful and difficult to war against sin in our lives. I mean, read Romans 7, right? And we can't fight sin in our own strength, hence the armor of God. But tonight in this text, you know, and this is an easy text. Tonight in this text, most commentators agree. Or at least the ones that I think are worth their salt. Let me just be straightforward and honest, right? But most commentators agree here that In this text, Isaiah tells us, explains to us how it is that God will ultimately deal with the adversary of sin and how he will deal with those who make sin the animating principle of their lives and who seek to oppose the people of God either by sinful oppression or sometimes even more dangerous by sinful influence and seduction. And so it's a text that is full of great encouragement to our souls. And it begins with this divine confirmation that If we're to be freed from the destructive presence of sin once and for all, God is the one who must act, right? God is the one who must act. Praise God. In his work upon the cross, Christ has defeated the power, right? The dominion of sin, but the presence of sin is still with us until the day that he returns. And so let's take a look at this for a moment. Go back to verse 15 and read it with me, okay? The beginning of verse 15. Truth is lacking. Boy, is that a descriptive, perfectly descriptive term of our day, isn't it? Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Here's what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying the Lord sees. The Lord sees and he knows the opposition to the truth. That is in this world. He knows it. God is not oblivious to the reality that we live in a world that hates truth. He sees the way that it's disregarded, the way that it's treated with disrespect and dishonor. And he also sees that as a result, those who determine to depart from evil, right? Those who seek to live according to divine truth, those who pursue righteousness will make themselves a target. They make themselves a prey, okay? Beloved, here's the thing. A society awash in sin does not simply ignore those who seek to honor God, does it? That is not the way of this world. If you sincerely seek to honor God in all that you do, even in Bible Belt, Virginia, you will run afoul foul. Of a multitude. Isn't that true? He sees it. A society of washing sin doesn't just ignore those who seek to honor God, but rather it attacks and seeks to destroy them. And why is that? Here's why. It's because those who depart from evil and desire to live by truth are a threat. Number one. And number two, by their very lives they condemn those whose lives are animated by sin. And they do so because those who seek to honor God hold to God's truth, right? And become a prey. You know? It's not always easy to follow Christ. You know, when I hear Christians that complain about it in our day, and and I've been guilty of it, I think to myself, what about in the days of the Reformers, man? Like, in the days of the reformers it wasn't just you know verbal or even physical assault it was burning you at the stake and when that wasn't good enough to express the hatred then you would scatter the ashes to the wind or throw them in the river but God sees God sees He sees and he knows. And beloved, he is not blind or callous to the troubles of his people. He knows sin's constant attack on his people at every level. He knows it. He knows that there is no justice in a world that's steeped in sin. And he sees that it's evil and it displeases him. Moreover, he knows that there's nobody to deliver, right? There's nobody that can rescue us from the presence of sin in this world, right? Even when we try to do it, like I think about those colonies that would try to, they would try to establish those, those colonies where, you know, you, those, I I don't even know how you describe them really, but like, you know, these virtue colonies where people would go and, and, and and they would legislate against sin. Those things never lasted because you can legislate against sin all you want, but hmm? it's in you, Right? He knows that there's no one to intercede and intervene. In fact, the word for wondered there is a word that means to be appalled or revolted. That there's nobody that can do this. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand this. I want to make sure we, we get, understand what Isaiah is saying here. Isaiah is speaking anthropomorphically. Do y'all want me to spell that? Anthropomorphically, I'll spell it for you. A N T H R O P O M O-R-P-H-I-C-A-L-L-Y. If you didn't get that, just Google it. It'll come up. Okay? Anthropomorphically. In other words, he's describing the Lord in human-like terms. And it's not that God is surprised. It's not that God is caught off guard in any way as though he thought there would be some mere human that could have filled this gap but didn't. That's not the idea here. Rather, it is a divine confirmation that God's got to act for the sake of his people to drive the enemy's sin and its many manifestations out of their presence and take heart because the divine warrior's coming. This picture is awesome. I love it. This is an awesome picture here. The Lord sees there's nobody to deliver his people, right? Again, not a surprise, rather, a confirmation that God alone can act for the well being of his people. And then, so we read in verse 16, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. What does that mean? Well, let's think back to Isaiah 53, okay? Let's think back to Isaiah 53. We know there that the arm of the Lord is who? It's Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so the picture here is of the Lord Jesus Christ intervening on Behalf of the triune God for the sake of his people. And the Hebrew here is a little difficult, but most commentators agree that the idea is that the Lord has within himself everything that's necessary to deliver his people. Everything he needs. Everything necessary to deliver his people and bring their rescue to its full completion. He possesses all salvation and all righteousness. So Christ, who he is and what he has done and what he will yet do, is the only solution to his people's needs. He's the only solution to the seductive, destructive, and tempting presence of sin and the oppression of proud and unrepentant sinners. And so, Isaiah gives us this picture of the arm of the Lord, right? Our divine and redeeming warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ, dressing himself for battle. Dressing himself for battle. I love this picture. Look at verse 17 with me. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. When I read that, I get goosebumps. Now I'm not I'm not, you know, ashamed to say it. Like that is an awesome picture to me. This attire, right? It represents who he is, what he's committed to doing. And I love this military metaphor. You know, it's all throughout Scripture. This picture of God as a, as, a, as a divine, redeeming warrior, right? I mean, we see it all the way back in the Exodus, don't we? And then successively throughout the history of Israel. And it's a meaningful statement here. What remains for Christ to do to establish his eternal kingdom is to overthrow his remaining enemies once and for all and the description of the clothing here is significant and at the beginning it mirrors the the very armor that we're to put on as the as the children of god doesn't it he put on righteousness as a breastplate in the case of the lord this is a picture of the integrity and the uprightness of what it is that he will do a helmet of salvation on his head, pictures the ultimate deliverance of his people appearing to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The idea of this helmet of salvation is is he is the captain of it. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing. That speaks to the just judgment and the vanquishing of his enemies. God will bring to bear on all his enemies. Christ will bring to bear on all his enemies exactly what they deserve. No more and no less. And last, he's wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The idea there being the Lord's determination to bring his work To a full completion. The picture here is of the irresistible, righteous, all powerful, saving, and judging warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring his sovereign purposes to ultimate fruition because he's coming to conquer all his enemies, to destroy sin and those who love sin, and to rescue forever those who, by his grace, have turned from sin to him and war against it in order to be faithful to him. And that great distinction is made clear in verses 18 through 20. Look at it. Look at how Isaiah says this. He says, according to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. Get the picture here. This is so incredible, right? When, when the divine warrior comes dressed for battle all who oppose him will be utterly crushed. He'll render perfect judgment. Everybody will receive the just due of their deeds. And the word here that's translated as repay, I love this. This is a word that actually means to pacify. We use that word, for instance, in in military parlance when we say that the enemy was pacified or the rebellion was pacified. What we mean, without being overly graphic, is that it was absolutely demolished. And that's the idea here. He'll silence every enemy. He'll pacify all resistance and all of his adversaries, all enemies everywhere. All sin and those animated by sin will be sought out in earnest and they will be brought to swift and complete judgment. Those who have sinfully exalted themselves against the power and the holiness of God will face his vengeance and they have good right and good reason to be terrified because he's a devouring fire and he will consume them in a moment. Isaiah uses another image here. He he describes Christ coming like a mighty rushing flood that can't be withstood. And the consequence is that everywhere from the west to the rising of the sun that encompasses the entirety of the earth. The name and the glory of Christ will be feared. You know, it kind of reminds me of Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, where, at the, where we see the opening of the sixth seal that, 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 that you know, foreshadows Christ's return. And we read these words in verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Christ comes as a judge for his adversaries, but for those... Who by his grace have turned from transgression to the Lord in honest faith. For the people of God, he comes as a redeemer. A redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. Christ will come as a redeemer to his people to rescue us forever from the presence of sin and from the oppression of unrepentant and rebellious sinners. And so taken as a whole, this powerful picture of the arm of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, girding on his armor and coming to deliver, expresses the truth that he will not stand by idly while his people are destroyed. He won't allow them to be. He is totally committed to saving them. And the intervention depicted here is so drastic, it's so overwhelming, it is so filled with pictures of power that any thought that he may be indifferent or powerless is utterly driven from our minds. The divine warrior is coming. The divine warrior is coming. Hang in there. In fact, in many ways, I think about this. This is the Old Testament equivalent to the words that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians who, man, they were experiencing trial and suffering and persecution for their faith in Christ. And Paul wrote to them these words where he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. I quote this text a lot because it's one of my favorites. This, he says, their persecutions, their suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire is coming to make all things right. He is coming to redeem us fully and finally from the presence of sin in every manifestation, unrepentant sinners included, so that we can glory and marvel even more in him. That's his promise. That's his covenant promise to us. As we see in verse 21, Isaiah records in verse 21 these words. He says, and as for me, This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. This is my promise. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The idea is that all the promises of God every single one of them that he has given to us, beginning even before that, but especially since Isaiah 53. All of those promises he guarantees by his immutable character and faithfulness. He's put his spirit upon his people. He's put his words in our mouths. His purpose, God's purpose can't be thwarted because he's promised to fully redeem all of his people and his promises cannot fail. And so what this text is to be for us who are Christ's, who belong to the servant, it's to be an encouragement to us right now in the midst of this fallen world, an encouragement to our children and to our children's children to keep the faith to endure in faithfulness. This promise of God should be a comfort and a determination to us, serve as a determination for us to live lives of holiness to the Lord and to resist and, and war with sin and to stand firm amid persecution from sinners who refuse to repent. It should serve as fuel for us to confess and turn away from sin and to be faithful to God who has demonstrated His unchanging faithfulness to us. In other words... It should be an encouragement to us that apostasy and unfaithful and false shepherds will never destroy the church. Persecution and opposition from a world steeped in sin will never, ever destroy the church. God, in every age, will have those who speak His word and who are sustained by His Spirit. And so we got to be bold and undeterred. And we must do, as as Paul said, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's like he said at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Love for God and love for one another. Why? Because our redeeming warrior is coming. And he's coming. And his coming lies closer now than it did at the beginning of this message. Throughout history, God has been depicted as a mighty warrior on behalf of his people. But beloved, when the Lord Jesus Christ girds on his armor for the last time, It will be the defining and ultimately glorious day in all of history. It'll be the day of final salvation for those who've repented of their sins, the culmination of everything that we've waited for and hoped for. How glorious will that be? When even the very presence of sin is eradicated from our midst. Man, we talk about that a lot at home. Like, let's just, we'll drift into this conversation a lot of times where we'll just kind of sit there and go, Imagine what it's going to be like when we are able to worship the Lord God Almighty without any kind of, of restraint because of the sin that yet dwells in our mortal bodies. Imagine what it's going to be like when sin won't be a thought, when temptation will be banished forever, when it will be all peace and all harmony and all unity. As the people of God glorify forever their Redeemer who is worthy. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait for that day. But that day will also be, it will also bring to an end the opportunity for repentance. Christ will judge the sinful nations who defied Him and persecuted His people. He'll root out and destroy the goats among His sheep and sin and unrepentant sinners will be cast from the presence of Christ and from His people. And so we need to take this seriously. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fires, Paul says, it'll be good news for God's people. That day calls for readiness and where necessary repentance. And so I'll, I'll give the Apostle John the last word tonight. He says, First John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let's pray together. Father, what a rich text this is. And what an encouragement it is to our souls that this fight, which we must engage, and which we can engage only in the armor of God that you have provided for us, that this battle for faithfulness and for holiness Lord, it won't be forever. But one day, I pray soon, the sky will roll back like a scroll and the Lord Jesus Christ will descend and sin and unrepentant sinners We'll be banished from the presence of the living Christ and from the presence of his bride, the church. So keep us faithful, Lord. Make us determined in our hearts by your grace to be faithful to the end. And may we be unflinching and unashamed To proclaim the truth of the gospel and of the salvation that can only be found through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in this world that is steeped in sin, trusting that if it be your will, you can turn even the hardest, flintiest, stoniest heart into a soft heart of faith in Christ. Make us to be faithful. Make us to endure until the day that we see you in all your glory. We love you, Christ. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the redemption that you have won for us, for the way that you have conquered the guilt and the shame of our sin, the way that you have broken sin's power, and the confidence that we have that you will, on the day of days, Vanquish sin from our very presence. To you be all honor and glory. We love you. We give you praise. For you, Redeemer and Savior in the Lord, you are worthy. 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 Amen.